we're just going to quickly highlight where we ended last uh, Wednesday evening, and then we'll get into our new material in chapter 11, chapters 11 and 12 as well. Glad you're here tonight. Uh, two judges in brief that we talked about near the tail end of chapter 10, and that was Judge Tola and Judge Jair. And we talked about those two that it seems as if that they were uh, positive judges. The fact that you have 45 years combined and no war, no uh, judgment, uh, no bad things presented seems to suggest that they were uh, positive judges who had done some good. And then chapter 10 in verse 6, as we develop at the middle part of chapter 10, Verse 6 is one of those big transition verses where it starts with however, or it starts with now, or it starts with then, or it starts with but, where something happens. And in this case, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You could go through, and there's different kind of uh, ways you can study the book of Judges. One of those is to look at that statement or a, a statement similar to that and just examine all of those times. Then they did evil. Then they did evil. Find out those four to five, six words together, and you'll have a very complete study of the book of Judges. Um, One thing that I did not mention at the end of last week is that there are a total of seven gods that are referenced. I think I did mention it, but we were running out of time. And I thought that was kind of interesting in that these people have now given themselves over completely to idolatry, not just partially. Partial idolatry is bad enough, but when you completely go into idolatry, it it just to the nth degree of unrighteousness. Um, How many years of oppression were they at the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites? Do you remember as chapter 10 develops? I heard someone say 18. That's what I came up with. Uh, so you have 18 years of oppressions, uh, of oppression, and I know we're going kind of quickly here because I want to really get into chapters 11 and 12 because there's about five verses that we could spend the entire time just on five verses in, in 11. Um, verse 10, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said, we have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So here's yet another one of those um, ultimate verses of repentance or of a, at the very least a recognition of sin. One of the things we pointed out two weeks ago is that there's a difference between recognition and repentance. I can recognize my sin and maybe even feel a little bit sorry about that, but not repent of it. And so those things have to all be combined together in order for there to be a real significant change. And that goes back to the cycle and the circle that we'll look at here just as a reminder in just a couple of moments. How does God respond to them in the next three or four verses in, in, a, in a phrase or two? Yeah, why not? Absolutely. So God's initial response over the next three to four verses is, you know, I, I've done a lot of things for you in the past. Almost like, do you expect to just keep coming to me like I'm a, a, a token booth and you put the token of, oh, I'm sorry, and so everything's going to be okay. And, uh, and that goes back to this concept of recognition versus repentance that we visited two weeks ago. And I put two question marks there because this is just kind of a, a theory that perhaps the issue here is that God was trying to get them to move from recognition to repentance. 
He's trying to move them that direction because they were not otherwise moving that direction. Uh, Verse 16, and then we'll move on to our applications and then to chapter 11 here in just a moment. But uh, verse 16 uses a phrase where it says, They put away the foreign gods from among them. They serve the Lord. And then the tail end of verse 16 is where I want us to focus for just 30 seconds or so. It says, His soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Whose soul are we talking about here? This is the Lord's soul. In, in, my, in my Bible, the H is capitalized, which is kind of a helpful way in some English versions to figure out generally who's talking and who's not or who they're talking about. Although that's not always uh, a surefire way of figuring things out. But let's talk about the soul of the Lord. Why does he use that phrase? What does that phrase embody? And there may be three or four right answers just for discussion. His, his, his very depth was grieved, as Brother Bruce points out. I think that's a great way of putting it. What else? I'm, I'm reminded as you're thinking of Ephesians 4, where it says that do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, we can make God upset. We can make him sad. Uh, we can make him disappointed. We can grieve our God. Other thoughts on that particular phrase? I think that maybe compassion. Sure. Yeah, and that's one of the underlying themes that I'm glad that Nate brought that up that we've talked about over the course of our seven and a half, seven weeks of study now, eight weeks. And that is not only is Judges a book of God's disobedience, of of people's disobedience to the Lord, but it's of his incredible patience and compassion and his willingness to forgive them and say, I'm going to give you another opportunity to do well. That's true universally in terms of his judgment on the nations and giving them other opportunities. But it's also true in terms of the individuals that even though uh, Jephthah is not the perfect person as we're going to get into tonight, he's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 32, as well as some of the other characters who have not the perfect history sur- uh, surrounding them. I put up there that just seems to me to be kind of a picture of God's mercy, his patience, his forbearance, going back to the grieving that Brother Bruce talked about. Anything else on chapter 10? I know we flew through that quickly, but I do want to take comments. If you have something more lengthy, just raise your hand and Jason will get a microphone to you. If it's something, three or four words, I'll repeat it. Someone had a hand. Oh, Brother Bruce. He's coming with a microphone for you. Just, just very quickly, I heard, uh, I believe it was the uh, brother at Douglas Hills, and my, my brain has, has stopped. Paul Earnhardt. But he said, uh, you can't have love, and God is love. You can't have grief without having love. Hmm. And so love is necessary. And God's very... Uh, essence uh, was grieved and it's been grieved many times throughout both the Old that's Testament a good way of putting and, and New Testament but that's, that is a very heavy thing to consider that God can uh, be sorrowed sure. that he can be uh, grieved yeah good I think that's a very good way of putting it very, very good comment um, alright real quickly here uh, we always At the end of every two chapters or so, we try to make some big picture applications. One of the things that I stressed very early on in our study of Judges is we did not want to just do an historical study where we said we've checked the box, we've studied Judges, we've done what the elders have asked us to do, and let's move on. 
There's got to be something for us to learn, and not that we haven't already learned in what we've done, but just three or four applications. I think I've got three on here. Number one, remember the good things so as to do more good things. Remember Shechem's history. It goes back to what we talked about early last week. So we want to do good, so we need to remember the good of the past. You can also flip that around and say in order to avoid doing evil, we need to remember the evil done in the past, which is in some ways why the Old Testament is there, Romans 15 verse 4, for our learning. Secondly, when God is removed from the narrative, chapter 9 does not mention the Lord until you get down to the very tail end, and then it's almost an afterthought, and now it's a matter of God's judgment coming upon the people. Nothing good transpires. That's true, and leave God out of the church, leave God out of your country, leave God out of your personal life, leave God out of your marriage. Bad things are going to happen. And thirdly and finally, always remember that we are to be thankful for God's incredible patience with mankind which is one of the things that we were talking about here, Brother Nate brought up just a moment or so ago. Anything else on the first 10 chapters? All right, very good. Let's get into chapter 11. Before we do so, this is our kind of our broad template or boilerplate um, where you have Israel serving the Lord. They choose to sin. He either, and Mitch and I were talking about this just a few moments ago, he gives them over to a foreign nation or... He allows one of their own to somehow plague them or to uh, cause them harm. They cry out, just like we talked about tonight. He raises up a judge uh, who then delivers them. Of course, God is the ultimate judge, which is one of the phrases in chapter 11, I think. And then they serve the Lord again, and then they repeat. And there's a lot of different ways of studying judges, but that, to me, is kind of a helpful little uh, circle of something. And if you want these slides... Uh, you're more than welcome to them. All right. Chapter 11 is about a character by the name of who? Jephthah. Uh, It's a long chapter. It's 40 verses. And uh, usually when we talk about Jephthah and uh, we talk about who he is, we almost always focus on the tail end of the story. We will delve into that tonight, Lord willing. Uh, but what do we know about him in his biography, which is brief at the very best? He's a son of a harlot. Say again? He's a son of a harlot. He's a son of a harlot. So he's an illegitimate child. I think that's the second thing I put up there. He's introduced with a very judgy tone by being called what kind of a man? A, a valiant man, a mighty man of valor, a man of boldness, a man of bravery, depending on the translation you're reading from. He is an illegitimate child. Another way of studying the book of Judges that I've come across is look at all the different changes and things that are surprising. You have Ehud who surprises you. You have Gideon and, the, and God's method of deliverance surprising you. You have the surprise of a female judge. Uh, you have the surprise now of someone who has an, a, a sordid background. And in these days, as we see here, a person can be judged simply based on the choice of your parent or your parents. And you didn't have anything to do with your conception, but you are responsible for bearing that load going forward. And then the third thing is what did his brothers do to him? They, they throw him out. They say, you're out of this family. We don't want to have anything to do with you. But something changes uh, starting in about verse 3 and 4. What, what happens that changes this? Because if, if this were the case, Jephthah would have been a footnote in history. If this were not the case. But what ends up happening? They're going to fight their oppressors. They're going to fight their oppressors. Let's, let's read just a couple of verses here. 
um, in chapter 11. Verse 4, it came to pass at the time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was, verse 5, when the people of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They came to Jephthah, come be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Jephthah said, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? We'll go one more verse here. The elders of Gilead said, that is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head. Anybody have a different word than head? Verse 8, I think everyone's got the word head, probably. I didn't see a different word. Uh, over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So now there's this, what I would call a plea for Jephthah. And here is a um, transitory period where you move this transition from exile, where he is a nobody, to where he's now going to be a leader or be in a leadership position. That's a huge jump that he's making at the bequest of his own tribe mates, of his own family members, of his own friends, of his own city mates, or at least what were, were his city mates before he was expelled from the family. So that seems to me to be yet another one of those surprises in the book of Judges. And again, you can study the book of Judges just by looking at surprising things in Judges. Uh, Whether it be a left-hand executioner, um, or whether it be the woman, or whether it be uh, tent pegs through heads. or There's all kinds of fun stuff in the book of Judges, right? Um, Thoughts on any of that uh, at this point, what we've talked about? I want to go ahead and progress to verse uh, 10. What I thought was interesting in verse 10 is it says the elders, well, actually go back to verse 9. And in verse 9, 10, and 11, this is the game of what am I looking at and what am I thinking? What is in 9, 10, and 11 that should get our attention? Maybe. One word. Okay, I didn't think of that. Okay, two words in those verses. I like that because there is something conditional about, and that's a good application that I did not put on the screen for tonight is the idea that if God wills or whatever. But the fact is, is God has mentioned, the Lord has mentioned on three different occasions, at least three different occasions. Jephthah said to the elders, if you take me back to fight against people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? The elders said, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Um, In some ways, they're making a vow, a precursor to later in the story, right? And Jephthah went and and the people made him head commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all the words before the Lord in Mizpah. So I thought that was interesting uh, of the idea of the Lord being mentioned on those three different occasions here. Um, how much God is involved in all this, I'm not exactly sure. Um, it goes back to what we talked about last week, the absence of the Lord, both in terminology as well as in the narrative of chapter 9, which I thought was a, a little bit interesting. Verse 12, he begins this monologue. He begins a speech, and it's a, it's a fairly lengthy thing that we're not going to read because we'll want to save some time for uh, chapter 12 as well, in addition to what we're going to do in chapter 11. Uh, but I would argue that Jephthah proves himself to be mighty in, among other ways, 
in words. Uh, let's read a couple of verses here, starting in verse 12. It says, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in the land? And the king said, and then he goes through in verse 13, and there's this debate. But it's really more of a speech with a mixture of debate. And who can share with me over the course of a dozen verses some of the historical um, facts that Jephthah presents as rationale saying it is okay, it is right, it is appropriate for us to engage in this war. Who, who can kind of summarize the next dozen verses? So? The history of God providing the land to the of right, right. So remember that when, very, very good name, I'm glad you mentioned that. So remember that when the people left Egypt and they moved their way to the promised land, there were certain permissions that were granted and certain prohibitions that were made about lands that you would go into, people that you were to eradicate, or lands that were to be kind of hands-off, right? And he kind of goes through that and gives a brief history. And this is, if you've got a study Bible or if you have marginal notes, you're going to see so many cross-references to passages back in the first couple of books of the Bible because it's going back and it's detailing the history of all these different things. For example, verse 17, Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Please let me pass through your land. This is verse 17. But the king of Edom would not heed, and in like manner they sent to the king of Moab. He would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. So that's just one of the little details that hopefully you've read through. If not, read through sometime tomorrow before you take a nap. Uh, read through these particular verses, and you'll get the, the full picture of everything that's transpiring here. want to drop down to actually to verse uh, 27, and I want to read 27 through uh, just 28. Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, and then if you want to underline certain things or start certain things, the judge. So in the book of Judges, we're talking about human figures who are savior kind of characters. But here he says, may the Lord, the judge, Render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Which then leads us into the next paragraph, which is the kind of consequential part A of the final two paragraphs of chapter 11. Um, thoughts on the first 28 verses, because we want to spend the rest of our time looking at the, the last few verses here. Things that we, I haven't covered everything. We didn't read every verse. Brother Nate up here, uh, Jason. We didn't read every verse. Um, you have the power to read that on your own, but Brother Nate. One thing that uh, stood out to me, and I'm not, I'm not sure how old Jephthah is or how many generations has passed since uh, Joshua and everything, but we know that many times Israel had forsaken God and worshiped Baals and stuff like that, but yet... Jephthah still knows the history, mm -hmm. and that's just that's something that still stood out to me after all the different times that they left God and came and worshipped Baal and back and forth over numerous years, Jephthah knew that history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a good lesson for us that even in spite of all the ugliness that may be around us, 
All it takes is one person to stand up and say, this isn't right, we need to do what is right. And that's the story of so many different characters and instances in the Old Testament as well. Anything else on the first 28 verses? All right. Key verse, at least it seems to me, is what we find in verse 29 where it reads the following. It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now, there's so much you could ask. Well, what about before that? And I'm not about to give you the answer. I told David Neal that every difficult question tonight is going to go to David Neal, who's with us tonight. So so I'm glad he came because we're going to turn all of our difficult questions to David Neal tonight. Um, but it just seems a little bit interesting to me that it says the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And then verse 30 is the vow. Uh, arguably not the first vow in chapter 11, based on what I had said a few moments ago, but this is the one that we focus on, and this is the one that we're going to focus on for a good five or ten minutes tonight. He says, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. He defeated them from Aor as far as Mineth, 20 cities to abel Kermim with a very great slaughter, and the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So pretend that you have not read 34 through 40. Pretend that you've, that you've never seen that before. So you can't comment on that. Uh, strike that from, from your brain record for a moment. Um, what about the vow? What, what, what strikes you? Um, what does it make you think? Are there lessons that we learn? We can go ahead and get into some applications, even though we're not at that point of our primary lesson. But thoughts on the vow? Rash. Rash, is, is that the word you used? Okay. I think that's a very good word. I'm not sure I used that in... Uh, In my, but I like that word, rash. Okay? What else? Okay. Not properly considering whether he had the ability to fulfill, to fulfill it. I'll go ahead and we'll go to uh, Brother Allen and then Brother Mitch here. And I'll go ahead and go to one of my applications, which is the idea of exercising caution in making vows or promises. Brother Allen. I think if, if, if we're just reading it and we're not seeing what, what's coming, it's the mm-hmm. first time we've read it, I don't know that this would strike me as very uncommon. I okay. think we, that not exactly we see other individuals in the Old Testament, but this seemed to be the, the fact that vows were part of the law that you could say, I'm going to do this for the Lord, and he's, he's asking for, um, for victory while the Spirit of the Lord is also on him. Right. And is it very good? Is Jephthah the go, brother Mitch here? Is Jephthah the first person to kind of prod God to say, "Give me a little more proof" or "Give show me a sign"? No, no. We, Gideon was famous for that, right, brother Mitch? It's a it's a very worldly way of thinking to just make a, a vow uh, without thinking, without thought, and not understand the implication of a vow being made. It re- makes me think of uh, people that write their own marriage vows. 
Mm -hmm. You know, you're making a vow before God, but what are you, what are you saying? What are you committing to? Mm -hmm. And do you fully understand that? Absolutely. Yeah. You you know, we use the word vow almost universally in a marriage uh, sense and in just English vernacular. And that certainly came to mind as well. We need to understand I'm pledging that I'm going to love you no matter what. And you're pledging to love me in spite of uh, sickness and health and richer and poor and all those things as well. Very good, Mitch. Other thoughts before we... And, and I know it's a little unfair because we know the rest of the story. Um, and I appreciate Alan playing along with the game uh, so far. Okay. Um, so I debated, not for a long time, but I debated. <laughs> and, I, and I've confessed over the last few weeks, I, I struggle with judges. I love the book of Judges, but I struggle with it. I'm, so if you, if, so I, I'm, I'm saying that, one, because... Hopefully, I'm not the only one who says, whew, in the words of one of our elders tonight who asked me, what was he thinking? And that may be another thing here, right? So here's, here's, here's what I'm going to say about the vow, fulfillment of the vow. There you go. I'm done. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We'll go a little further than that. Uh, but let's go ahead and read 34 through 40. Let's read the entire thing so that in case you've never read it before, you see exactly what happened here. Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah. There was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord... Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. He said, Go. She went with her friends, bewailed her virginity on the mountains, and so it was at the end of the two months that she returned to her father. He carried out his vow with her which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. All right, so we'll just open it up, and uh, we'll put a time limit on it. Um, I, I debate. I told one of our, our shepherds, I, I debated giving everyone a piece of paper and having you write down uh, your thoughts so you can be anonymous uh, in case you wanted to share something that you were uncomfortable sharing. What's happened here? And, 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 and he kept the vow, right? He, he kept the vow. And, we, and, we, and I'm fine to leave it at that, but some of you have questions, and Brother David Neal is going gonna, is gonna to share everything. Peace. You, you, want, you have a microphone for him? Jason? Oh, he's right, right there, uh, right in front of right There he is. He, sn- he snuck in. Um, so... It's debated on what exactly it means that Jephthah kept the vow. Some have suggested that it may be similar to uh, Samuel being dedicated to the Lord in 1 Samuel by Hannah, that he um, goes and lives, and he lives as a priest. He lives with the, pre- uh, with the priest of the day. Um, uh, so perhaps she is committed to be a virgin for the rest of her life. I, I personally think... That based on what he says in the vow, I think it's best to understand this, that that's not what actually happened. I think mm-hmm. he actually sacrifices her the way his wording is. I don't know what he was thinking because I don't know what he expects to come out of his house. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently it wasn't her. He only has one kid, so I, 
may be reasonable. And when he says house, he might also be thinking his property. Um, so the first animal he comes across. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, I think he goes through with this. Uh, my personal opinion is I think he shouldn't have. I think he should have uh, looked at this and said, I've made a rash vow, and I should bear the consequences of my rash vow, not an innocent party. Okay. Um, it reminds me of there are a couple of cases where God talks about vows in the old laws um, and how to handle that. Um, uh, but that's my personal opinion. Okay. Thank you. By the way, one of the things, we'll get, go to Alan here. One of the things about David Neal, one of the, the blessings of being a visiting preacher at a place is you can say something and say, mic drop. And then leave. <laughs> See, I, I gotta live with I gotta live with you all for the next few weeks. If I say something you disagree with, so. but I, I appreciate that very much, and that's a good summary of, of some of the historical context as well, brother Allen. All right. So, in an alternative to my good brother-in-law David Neal, <laughs> who's staying with me, and we may talk more. He may <laughs> educate right me ahead. further. I, I may hold a different view, mainly because I think. I think this passage takes a lot of our, our ability to look at context and, and what we know about the Lord and, and what everyone is doing and saying, and there's too much there to, to kind of get into. Um, maybe I will restrict what I'm thinking to the vow itself. As was mentioned, there is allowance for how to kind of get out of a, a rash vow, Leviticus 5, how to pay it out, so to speak, for lack of a better term. Nowhere in the text will you find any description of this vow as being rash or being something that was foolish. Now, he's very disappointed when he sees the enormity of what the payment will be, whatever it might be in fulfillment. But he feels like, I have to do this. His daughter feels like, you have to do this. They don't seem to consider that. You didn't know what you were saying. We have to get the animals. We'll get out of this. So... I'm not sure this is really a negative thing that happens here, just based on the text, Very my fair. understanding right now. Very fair. Brother, uh, your brother, brother. <laughs> I'm no part of that family, so I can say. <laughs> <laughs> and you're leaving in like Whatever I want to, I guess. I think it's hard to, to wrap any of our minds around the fact that this would be the only time that God has ever accepted a human sacrifice that we know of in all of the scripture. So it seems almost impossible that this is talking about a human sacrifice. When that's coupled with the fact that her virginity is what's talked about, the fact that she's an only daughter is what's talked about, I believe that, the, that what is being given up here is the, Jephthah's line. It's, it's done. He's, he's, his, his, uh, all of his descendants are no more at this point in time, and that's the sacrifice that, that goes to the Lord. Uh, you know, it mentions that it's a burnt offering, and, and there, there is some, some question about what that would actually mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, the burnt offering that you read about in the Scripture uh, every single time. So it just seems hard, hard to believe that it's a, uh, it's a, it's a human sacrifice okay. that God would accept. Okay, thank you. Like I said, we'd we limit it to five or ten minutes here. Brother Bruce, and did you see another hand? Brother Bruce, the microphone's coming. Well, I agree, and I've, I, I've heard all of the, the masters of judges' education tonight, and, and I stand certainly at the bottom, but 
looking at my God who was so disgusted and so uh, sometimes, my words, speechless at the brutality of those who threw their children into Moloch and those who offered human sacrifices to other gods and things. Uh, I agree, I have trouble thinking uh, anything uh, that would contradict what the scripture says and who God is. Mm -hmm. And so I have to kind of lean on the idea of a consecration, uh, sacrifice to God, his sacrifice of his daughter as Hannah sacrificed her mm -hmm. son and others uh, to that fact. What is the purpose of a sacrifice? It's to take something that is uh, the firstborn, something that is uh, beautiful, and uh, uh, in this case, she was a virgin, so we, we might say perfect, mm -hmm. and offer it to the Lord. And in that, that sacrifice, uh, she was alive to God and perhaps uh, dead to her father in, in, mm -hmm. a, in, a, in a sense. Sure. Uh, but I, I don't know. I have to go with what the scripture says about the whole thing right and and i don't believe god can contradict himself right okay uh all the way over our friends from visitors here uh, remind me your name again jordan. jordan i knew it started with a j i'm sorry about that so i knew it started with a j what's that no yeah just you're, you're he's good i think ultimately as far as what happened in this case i would have to say we, we all probably have opinions about it, but we ultimately don't know. Now, what we do know is that if I made a vow that to God that I would offer up my oldest daughter, Peyton, on a burnt offering, that would be sinful. Now, that doesn't exclude the fact that sometimes things are recorded in Scripture, and it doesn't say if that was acceptable to the Lord or not. Now, I have my opinion that her bewailing her virginity is strange. If... I had a 13-year-old daughter, or however old her daughter was, and I said, I'm going to light you on fire. I don't think she'd be worried about her virginity at that point. But that being said, the, the text doesn't necessarily say. We just know that would, God would not have been okay with that. Yeah. Now, if that happened, okay, shouldn't, shouldn't have happened. But yeah. sometimes things are just recorded in Scripture, and we don't, sure. we don't know. Let's put a pause there for just a second. Um, I, I know, Josh, did you have your hand up? Okay. Um, I hope you know, uh, I've been, and I want to say this for my benefit now, because I haven't shared what I think about it, and I'm probably not going to. If you want to talk afterward, we can, because we, my, my whole point was, is to educate you on the two major schools of thought, which I didn't have to do because it was done for me, which is great. I hope you know that me by well enough after a couple of years, I'm not one for controversy. I'm not one to, to throw grenades. Uh, that's not my style. That was not my intention tonight. So I hope that came across. My, my goal was just to have a 10-minute discussion on it and then kind of move forward. So I hope that came across that way. That was what I wanted to do. Um, without a doubt, uh, God wants us to learn certain things from this, uh, regardless of where you land on it. Um, and that's going to get us into our applications in just a few moments here. 
We've got four minutes left. I'm going to try to get through most of chapter 12 because this is not the end of the story. Sometimes we, we look at these events and that's all we ever think about with Jephthah. And I appreciate everybody's thoughts on it. But there's more to the story of Jephthah where you have some more question marks kind of surrounding him. Um, or at least uh, when you compare him back to, uh, to chapter 8. Let's talk about Jephthah and Ephraim. Um, what happens in the first five to seven verses of, of chapter 12? Whom, well, I already gave it away, but who comes and complains? The men of Ephraim are mad that yeah. Is this the first time we've seen this thing play out? No. No, we saw it happen in chapter 8, right? And in chapter 8, who was the, who was the judge? Who was the, the key figure? Gideon, right? And what did Gideon do that we talked about two weeks ago with these people? How did he respond? What, what quality? He soothed their anger. He soothed their anger. He calmed them down. He says, guys, you are so valuable you are, you are just, I mean, he's, he's one of those guys that just kind of calms the temperature, brings the temperature down in there. So we see, so I put up there, consider uh, 8, 1 through 3 as well. Um, I don't know. Again, sometimes I ask questions because I know the answers and I just want to ponder. Sometimes I'm just curious. Is there a difference between Jephthah and Gideon? I mean, I, I guess there's obviously a difference, obviously a difference because he's, he does not placate them. He does not. Uh, calm the, the temperature. But is there a difference between the two of them? Uh, let, let's read just a couple of verses here. Uh, my people and I were in a great struggle. Verse 2. When I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and I crossed over against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to this day to fight against me? So, so I mean, it's like... You, you want to come after me? I'll punch you right in the nose. That's, that's, that's the way I read his response here. Just thought that was maybe something to learn from there. Something that I think we can learn from what we did two weeks ago in chapter 8 as well. Thoughts on Jephthah that we haven't covered yet? I know we're kind of going quickly here. We'll try to revisit this real briefly next week, Lord willing. Uh, three additional judges uh, over the course of 25 years, very little is said about them. It seems as if... Oh, oops, what, what happened here? Did I do that? <coughs> Jason didn't do it. Three different judges. All right. We have uh, Ib- Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. So 7 plus 10 plus 8 is 25 years of, again, what seems to be considerable peace. Uh, not saying that there weren't some issues in there that may have been just not recorded in history. We don't know that. But I hope that uh, is just uh, a good sign for the people. Because they've had a, a, a long history of ugliness. Hopefully now this is where they've had some reasonable sense about themselves. Okay. Uh, real quick, applications. What are applications from our study tonight? Things that we can take away from. I've got three, but what do you have? Hopefully there's some value to our 40 minutes together. Think before you speak. Think before you speak. Regardless of, uh, of what happened, 
That is a universal application. Think before you speak. That's number two. I'm going to put up number one. Even if the world rejects us, God can still use us for good. There's the story of Jephthah. His family rejected him, but he was still listed as a character of faith by God. Secondly, exercise caution in making promises. Think before you speak. Um, Be slow to speak, slow to wrath. Uh, The idea of be thinking before you talk. Exercise your brain before you engage your mouth, right? Use your filters, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. Other uh, big applications from our study tonight. Honor your word. Honor your word, okay? And there's something to be said. That regardless of everything, Jesus says, let your nay, nay be nay and let your yes be yes, right? That's the universal principle of the Christ. And three, there's value in working with others and soft answers. And I, again, I'm not, I'm not here to, to judge Jephthah's response. That's a subject for another 15 minutes uh, of study that we're not going to engage in. But I must say there is something to be said for the universal sense of calming people. A soft answer turns away wrath, Solomon says in Proverbs 15, I think it is. So other thoughts on our final 60 seconds. We've got a few extra seconds here, it looks like. All right, here's what I'd like for you to do next week is think about these things. Go ahead and reread it if you want. Uh, Nothing wrong with praying for clarity. Um, Fortunately, let me leave you with this. Nowhere in the picture of the New Testament judgment, the judgment that comes, do I see where we stand before God and confess him as our Lord and Savior on the day of judgment. And he says, before you get into heaven... I want you to figure out Judges 11 and 12 perfectly for me. So, all right. Thanks for your good time tonight, uh, for, your, for your good attention, for the good comments. Uh, next week, go ahead and start reading uh, Samson 13, 14, and 15.